the FT. This week, as Vladimir Putin faces voters in presidential elections, we take a look forward at what the future might hold for Putin and for Russia. And we also look back at how the man has evolved over the past 12 years with some of the FT's top Russia experts. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan. His popularity is waning. It's waning not just amongst the middle classes who are out on the streets, but I think there's evidence as well that it's waning among so-called ordinary Russians outside Moscow as well. Russians are heading to the polls this weekend to vote for a new president. Well, for a president anyway. It looks like Vladimir Putin, the prime minister and before that a two-term president, is increasingly likely to secure victory in the first round, despite vocal opposition from pro-democracy protesters. This is very much Vladimir Putin's Russia that we are talking about. Joining me on the line from Moscow is FT Bureau Chief Charles Clover, and with me in the studio is John Thornhill, the FT's news editor and the man who was our Moscow Bureau Chief when Vladimir Putin rose to the presidency in 2000, and Neil Buckley, our Eastern Europe editor and also a former Moscow Bureau Chief. Welcome. Charles, why don't we start with you? It's been an astonishing few months in Russian politics. What are we going to see in the coming days? I think all the attention is focused on what happens on Sunday. By that, I'm not talking about the election numbers themselves. I think, I think the biggest variable in the in the election is not whether or not Putin wins. I don't think there's anybody who doubts that he's going to win, and probably fairly convincingly. The biggest variable is going to be the level of fraud that is detected, because that is going to be used as leverage by the opposition to fuel for, for more street protests. People are already girding themselves for the post-election demonstrations. There were some protest groups that were handing out tents on Pushkin Square to people who were being encouraged to set up tent cities in the manner of Tahrir Square or uh, Kiev's uh, Maidan in Yezhelezhnosti, because once the weather gets warmer, it's obviously much more amenable to having long-term protest movement. But, and so, but yeah, the expectation at this point is is that we are going to see a first-round victory for Putin. I think the polls are giving Putin anywhere from 58% to 63% or 66% in the first round. That's gone up spectacularly since the middle of December when he was getting 42% in the first round, partly driven by promises. He's, he's made about 10 trillion rubles worth of promises, and they've even delayed raising tariffs on electricity and heat and water and stuff like that, which they do every January, so that nothing hurts his popularity. The caveat is that the pollsters also got the parliamentary elections on December 4th spectacularly wrong. So the average predicted result for United Russia political party was 53%. The official result was 49%. And the real result, if one believes that there was massive fraud, as there's a lot of evidence for that, was far lower than 49%. So, you know, you're talking about the polls got the real level of support for United Russia wrong by probably about 14%. If the poll numbers are substantially wrong as they were in the parliamentary elections, you know, anything's possible. But yeah, at the moment, I, I would not bet against Putin in the first round. Okay, so let's say he comes through the first round and, and he's back and he's president again. Neil, what does that mean for both Putin and for Russia? Paradoxically, even if Putin wins in the first round, it will mock the commencement of, of a period of great uncertainty in Russia, perhaps the most uncertain period for Russia since before Putin became president or the early days of his presidency. And the reason for that is that I think brand Putin is in decline. His popularity is waning. It's waning not just amongst the middle classes who are out on the streets, but I think there's evidence as well that it's waning among so-called ordinary Russians outside Moscow as well. 
the reason that's important is because it's really been Putin's popularity with Russians that he's been able to sustain for a very long time that has enabled him to hold everything together, to consolidate the elites of Russia, the oligarchs, the politicians, the bureaucrats, the security services, the people who really run the country, given that this is not a real democracy. If his popularity declines, then he loses that ability to hold everything together, potentially. And then we get into uncertain territory. Will will certain factions rise up against him, try to put their own person in charge? Will we see more people coming out on the streets? It's very difficult to predict, but we're looking at uh, an uncertain phase now. Now, Charles, how are we seeing that slump in popularity being manifested on the ground, besides the street protests that we've all seen the footage of? Well, what's been going on for the last year is actually the last two years is a gradual decline in Putin's approval ratings and trust rating, according to virtually all the three major polling agencies. In the last month, or in the last two months, actually, in some sense, paradoxically, because at the height of the protest movement against Putin, actually his popularity has surged. And as I was saying before, partly because he's promised all these wage increases to virtually everybody, and his popularity scores are going up. It's not uncommon after an election for the winner to continue to have an increase, at least a short-term increase in their popularity, simply because they won. But what we're going to see in the long term, the big variable is whether this was a temporary blip or whether his popularity will continue to fall over the long term after it's got this sort of pre-election blip and its post-election blip. He's got to deliver on all these promises. A lot of that is hugely dependent on the price of oil. This is actually very, very important. (laughs) It seems very trivial, but they've put off the raising of electricity, water, and heat tariffs until until the month of June. They usually do it in January, but in June, these tariffs are going to go up, and it's always very unpopular. They, you know, the wage increases he's promised, if he can't deliver on that, then people start to get disappointed. So these are all the pocketbook issues that you would uh, see politicians go after? Yeah, this is basically what's happened, what Putin has delivered. The main reason for his popularity over the last decade is that he has presided over a doubling or a tripling of living standards of ordinary Russians. And that has stopped since 2009, since the economic crisis because the minor levels of economic growth have been cancelled out by growth and inflation. Now, I'm interested in how Putin has evolved over the years. John, you were one of the first foreign reporters to interview him. I have in front of me an interview from December 1999 that you did with Richard Lambert, the FT's editor at the time. The headline, hero, villain, soldier, spy, that makes it pretty clear that we already knew that this was a complicated man at the time. Just remind us where he came from and what the reaction was when he landed on the scene. Well, Vladimir Putin took over in August 1999. He was at that time head of the successor organization of the KGB. He was in many respects a kind of identicate hatchet-faced KGB officer who had been a spy in East Germany. He had been then working in his native town of St. Petersburg, where he had been an economic official there who kind of got sucked into the Kremlin. And he emerged in the summer of 1999 as this person who was plucked almost from obscurity to become prime minister. And his popularity ratings rocketed on the back of him waging an incredibly brutal suppression of the rebels in the breakaway Republic of Chechnya. And when we saw him at the end of December uh, 1999, his popularity by that time was really very high. And Yeltsin resigned a couple of weeks later and as acting was prime minister, Putin took over as acting president and then was able effectively to win the elections without too much trouble three months later. But I think what was interesting about him at that time was that 
A lot of the oligarchs were openly scornful of this guy. I mean, if you were anyone in Russia at that time, you should have been a billionaire oligarch. And Putin very quickly came to power. He consolidated his power. And then the likes of uh, Boris Berezovsky, Vladimir Gusinsky, and Mikhail Hadakovsky, who had uh, been so contemptuous of him, soon found that there was a really hard edge to Mr. Putin. So if we look back at these 12 years, this uh, transformation from this unknown, this person who uh, the power or the elite are openly scornful of, to uh, really the power center uh, in, in in Russia. What is it that, as we look back over these 12 years, let's say he wasn't reelected on Sunday and we were going to write his political obituary, what would be his main legacy? Neil? I think the fact that he held it together. This was a country back in 1999 that there was a danger that it could have fallen apart. It was in very bad shape. Russians told me in a visit in 99, this country could split up. And the main thing is he held it together. He was able to consolidate the elites, consolidate his own power base and allow Russia to benefit from the very fortuitous increase in oil prices that, of course, they didn't foresee then, but, but it did then occur in, in, in later years and create a, a middle class, a consumer culture and a much more prosperous Russia than it was 10 years ago. There are a lot of downsides as well, but those are certainly positives that uh, that you can look back upon. So those are the positives. John, what are the negatives? Well, I think Putin's legacy will be defined by what comes after him. Um, and I think in that sense, there are two narratives of what's going on. I think there's a, a Western narrative that uh, we've seen this upsurge of kind of middle class rebellion against uh, Putin. And I remember a lot of the liberals in the uh, 1990s were saying that they represented a middle class that hadn't yet been created. There is a view that there are the kind of middle class revolts going on in Moscow. But I'm very doubtful about that. And I'd like to hear what Charles says about this, because he's written very powerfully about the shift of the center of gravity in Russian politics to a far more extremist nationalist center, where the kind of red-brown coalition of old-style communists and pretty clear fascists, and that if Russia were to lurch into a more, even more authoritarian and extreme nationalist position, some people, bizarre as it might seem, would look back fairly fondly on Mr. Putin. However, if Russia develops a more Western path, then I think the verdict on Mr. Putin will clearly be a lot more damning. Yeah, one of the things that we've seen uh, over the last three months is the return of politics to Russia. I mean, uh, for the last decade, it's it's basically been in the deep freeze, and, and all politics has emanated from the Kremlin as a kind of a theater. And suddenly you have actual political organizations having street demonstrations and trying to attract followers. And, and it is true that the most emotive themes used both by the Kremlin, which is desperately trying to woo street support, and by the opposition is the theme of nationalism in different different versions. Both sides are doing their best to try and prove that they are the better Russians. So you have the leader of the opposition, Alexei Navalny, saying, or one of the leaders of the opposition, uh, Alexei Navalny, saying that the Kremlin is favoring immigrants and is sending all of this federal money to the North Caucasus, which keeps committing terrorist acts in Moscow. And so, um, you know, and he gets a lot of sort of support from run-of-the-mill nationalist groups. Meanwhile, the Kremlin is trying to sell the line that the opposition is a bunch of paid-for American spies and that they're not really Russians and, and they've been making a lot of nationalist speeches, Putin talking about the opposition as agents of influence and things like that. So certainly some form of nationalism, whether it's sort of an imperial type of nationalism that Putin favors or a kind of ethnic nationalism that many of the opposition seem to have made their peace with, those are the bedfellows that the liberal opposition has chosen. That is going to be the coming, you know, if there is a political, if there is an election, a real election, say in 2018, 
mean nationalism is going to be the center of gravity then. That is what I am seeing very clearly. But but John is absolutely right. If if by some fluke a nice liberal modernizer Democrat comes to power in the post-Putin era, Putin will be remembered as a sort of the, the troll who was living under the bridge the whole time, <laughs> who, who uh, was an authoritarian despot who clamped down on freedom and needlessly put Russia in the deep freeze for a decade. I think his legacy is still going to be written, obviously. Now, let's go back to this question of what comes next after Sunday. Do we see a Putin 2.0 that's now in development? I don't think that Putin is capable of changing, I'm afraid. I think he was so shaped by his Soviet upbringing, by his KGB background, and that formed the whole prism through which he sees Russia and the prism through which he sees the world. So that's one factor. The other point is that uh, he is surrounded by people who have made a lot of money out of the current situation, who have an awful lot to lose if they start undertaking significant economic reforms, structural reforms, and so on. So all of those things militate against the idea that we're going to see some great reformist Putin 2.0. My personal belief is that they will try and uh, carry on pretty much as they have been doing with some uh, political liberalisation to try and appease the middle class, but a lot of populism, a lot of throwing money around to the extent that they can. John? Well, what intrigues me at the moment is this split seemingly in the kind of elite in Russia and that you do have this rather bizarre candidacy of Mikhail Prokhorov, who is himself a kind of billionaire oligarch and hardly uh, someone who's going to resonate in the, the furthest, poorest reaches of Russia. But I mean, I think that speaks to the fact that Putin was once the sole authority in Russia and you now getting a fragmentation of power. And I think it's fantastically unpredictable what's going to happen next. I mean, you can paint almost any scenario for what's going to happen in Russia over the next five to 10 years. But I think the fracturing of the elite is something that is going to be very significant. Charles? Yeah, if we do see Putin's long-term poll ratings fall, those poll ratings are hugely significant, and that will encourage people in the elite to sort of to decide, well, we need to back another horse. If Putin starts to be seen as a lame duck who is only going to have one term, then he's going to be under pressure to actually hand over power earlier to an incumbent in the, similar, in the way that, that Yeltsin did in 1999 when he appointed Putin as his successor, and you'll have a succession. I think that that would happen if Putin's popularity continued to fall. And who are the obvious successors? Well, I don't think we've met them yet. I mean, there are a few people who are clearly primping themselves for succession. Dmitry Rogozin, who's a deputy prime minister in charge of military industry, he's a very popular politician, or he was a very popular politician until the Kremlin exiled him to, to Brussels as the ambassador to NATO because he was too popular. He's now back. He's a nationalist. And he is clearly making preparations for a political career here. Alexei Kudrin, the former finance minister, is also making overtures to the opposition and trying to carve himself a niche as a sort of a, as a, somebody who's in the middle between the, the Kremlin and the opposition. There are any number of people who would love to see themselves as successors to, to Putin in a sort of a managed success in scenario, um, which the Kremlin might try. But uh, more likely than that is that if they did try and hand over power in a sort of managed succession where Putin would find a, a nobody, basically, a, a new Putin who um, nobody had heard of, who owed everything to his mentor in exchange for the guarantee that Putin would stay out of jail and would get to keep his, his dacha, would take over the reins and, and become prime minister and uh, and then eventually president. But again, that's just one possible scenario. There are any number of things that could happen. But that that's the one increasingly being talked about. Charles Clover in Moscow, John Thornhill and Neil Buckley here in the studio in London. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. I'm Sean Donnan here in the studio in London. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com 
forward slash podcasts.